0: Hi, it's Michael and Anthony here presenting Small Business Banter. A healthy micro and small business sector means a successful economy and a more vibrant society. Small Business Banter is about helping regional business owners better prepare for the current challenges but also for the next stage of business success. I'm Michael Kerr, founder of Kerr Capital, advisors to business owners. Each week, with Anthony Turner from the Small Business Mentoring Service, we'll interview a different small business expert or a fellow business owner and get them to share their best tips and insights for you, the listeners. Small Business Banter is brought to you from the studios of 104.7 Gippsland FM, And he's heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Thanks also to our supporters, Kerr Capital and the Small Business Mentoring Service. So on today's episode of Small Business Banter, really pleased to welcome in uh, Professor or Adjunct Professor Warwick Powell. Uh, He's going to tell you a little bit about his resume and CV. It's quite extensive, but amongst other things, he's the Chairman at Sister City Partners. Um, He's uh, Chairman at Beef Ledger, uh, which is a blockchain-related business. He's had a, a wide uh, wide experience in uh, community and regional development. Um, what we're going to talk to Warwick about today is what blockchain is and how it might help small businesses, and also an update, he's, he's uh, got extensive understanding of China-Australia
1: trade relations.
0: So um, welcome in, Warwick.
1: G'day. How are you? Great to be with you. Yeah.
0: nice to, Nice to have you in. And Anthony Turner, my co-host from the Small Business Mentoring Service.
2: Hi, everybody. Great to be back again.
0: All right. Um, Warwick, give us a, a minute or two on, on, on your background and interest as they relate to uh, regional and, and and small businesses.
1: Look, I've spent probably the best part of 25 years um, engaged in uh, regional businesses, particularly in regional Queensland, um, working on all sorts of projects across diverse industries from information technologies and communications through to natural resources tourism agribusiness property development related um, initiatives and a lot of that has been related to connecting regional australian marketplaces and communities and economic project opportunities with the growing markets of asia and in particular china um, hong kong macau and those sorts of regions so pretty diverse exposure as far as industries are concerned but i guess the golden thread in all of that, Michael is the uh, the thought process, I guess, of enabling Australian regions to become better connected to the bigger markets immediately north of Australia.
0: Yeah, excellent. Uh, can't wait for this. So, so we, we just pick off blockchain. It, it's spoken about um, uh, very commonly these days. I'm not sure, you know, whether many people have a you know real handle for on what it is and how it can help their business. But you've got. You're involved with Beef Ledger, which is um, a blockchain-enabled business. Do you want to explain what that business is and how it uses blockchain to help be more successful?
1: Sure, absolutely. Look, blockchain as a technology has now been around um, about 12 and a half years or thereabouts and has only really been hitting its straps in the mainstream in the last couple of years As a technology, its main virtues, if you will, is the ability for information that many, many parties need to have confidence in can be created and shared in a way that um, all the different parties can depend upon it as being um, a reasonable basis of of, um, action going forward. One of the traditional problems in information systems is that information that's being passed along from one player to another Um, It it runs into a whole bunch of risks in terms of validity, accuracy, timeliness, um, authenticity and those sorts of things. What blockchain allows us to do um, in terms of what we use it for is to ensure that all the players involved in a particular supply chain activity are involved in the key phases of information production, validation, storage, dissemination and consumption at the same time. And what that means is that everybody has a shared responsibility for data integrity. Uh, That speeds things up, reduces costs um, associated with having to double-check things, and ultimately um, smooths out the ways in which supply chains work. And the reason why that's the case, Michael, is that supply chains are basically the movement of products in one direction, if you will, um, and the movement of money in the other direction. Um, it's a it's a circuit. And what joins those two things together is actually information about the things. So, um, and we know this in a commonsensical way, because when we buy something, um, we only hand the money over uh, when we're confident that what it is that we're receiving is what we wanted and what we ordered and it meets our specifications. Blockchain smooths those processes up. So, in the case of Beef Ledger, we use the technology to uh, improve the flow of information to all the way through to the end consumer, but principally focused around the wholesale marketplace to ensure that owners of assets and buyers of assets can be confident in what they're buying. So that's what we're doing there. Um, we are embedded into some pretty high-end research and development, given that it's a new area of technology. And we do that in collaboration with the Queensland University of Technology and the Future Food Systems Cooperative Research Centre.
2: um, with blockchain, how might, um, say, a group of small businesses um, within a particular community, um, you know, whether that's in Gippsland or in Queensland or wherever it might be, how might they be able to sort of uh, use this technology but even establish this type of technology for the benefit of their business?
1: Yeah, look, the technology itself is uh, becoming increasingly accessible. Uh, Like a lot of new things in the technical sphere, in the early days, it was quite opaque and difficult to access unless you had very particular technical skills. Uh, One of the things about the blockchain ecosystem is that uh, a lot of effort over the last 10 years has gone into really what I would describe as back-end or back-office issues, Um, and only in the last two to three years has the user interface has become uh, much easier to interact with and use. So in this day and age, um, increasingly the success of blockchain applications happens when people don't even know that they're really um, uh, working inside a blockchain environment. So in terms of the research work that we've done and the commercial applications that we've developed in things like Beef Ledger as a as a research case study, if you will, um, is that, uh, you know, people want the convenience, of course, of um, uh, being able to access tools via web apps, um, being able to interact with those in very familiar ways um, with as little friction as possible. So from a small business point of view, increasingly, um, it is uh, relatively easy and straightforward to become involved in blockchain networks and to access the tools, um, you know, contacting us is not a bad start at qut in terms of getting involved in and um, in processes that could help people um, understand and, and get on board
2: so from the from the small business perspective what does blockchain actually do for me
1: um, it can do a whole range of things um, and this is probably one of the most challenging things about blockchain technologies and its application in business environments is that it is a very much um, an underlying or a wholesale infrastructure layer, if you will, about how we as groups of people and groups of businesses deal with information. So as I said before, the traditional models of information uh, has largely involved information being produced um, by one part of a supply chain and then being sent to the next part and then being forwarded onto the next part and reviewed. and, and as it goes through each of these phases, uh, the um, information systems are very siloed. Uh, and what does that do? Well, what that means is that all of the other parties who are actually connected to complex supply chains of transactions are not party to or don't have transparency to that information. That results in friction, results in costs, uncertainty, etc. So first thing that blockchain does is that it starts to tackle questions around information doubt. So we often say that doubt equals discount. So when there is doubt around the veracity of the claims that you're making about your product, then the marketplace will discount that. Um, and, uh, and we then look at, uh, I guess, on the flip side of that is provenance equals profit. So when the marketplace can have confidence in the provenance claims of uh, the, the products that they're buying, then that delivers better value for the participants. So doubt Doubt equals discount. Doubt equals discount. Provenance equals profit. Yeah,
0: with, with um, uh, I'm I'm sure a few people are wondering what beef ledger is, and and I had a, a good look at the beef ledger website, and for me it it, it it really the whole thing about blockchain became a bit more understandable because what you're doing there is you've got beef farmers who are exporting high quality beef to China. That's the you know overarching. A transaction that's going on, and the beef farmers that you're that are using this technology are able to say, it was raised here, it was slaughtered here, it was transported this way, it's on the plate at a restaurant in China, and and therefore provenance is un, un, indisputed or undisputed, and so premium, uh, premium out a premium price paid by the consumer there because they can track back where this where this beef was grown and how it was slaughtered, et cetera. So that was, um, for me, a really compelling way, you know, and and if you go across other sectors, it could be wine, it could be any kind of thing, It just that the provenance equals profit is a beautiful way to put it. People will pay when they know where it was grown, how it was, you know, um, processed or, or whatever it might be.
1: Look, in competitive marketplaces where consumers do have choices in front of them. One of the factors that contributes to firstly appealing to a consumer and ultimately building a loyal consumer base is the confidence that a consumer or anyone on the buy side really, it could be a wholesaler or whoever, um, is the confidence that they have that what they're getting is more likely than not to be what it's meant to be. And that's really the heart of the information systems that we are creating The other parts of all of this, Michael, is that we understand information really as something that is very much connected to the real world of economic actors and behaviours. And so Beef Ledger, as a use case, is also in many ways an economic behavioural system where we are trying to create the right incentive mechanisms using blockchain technologies and smart contracts that reward Firstly, the pursuit of excellence, and that, and ensure that syst- systematically, the question of information integrity becomes a common public good, right? Because it's actually in everybody's interests that this information is dependable, that everyone accepts it as a basis of their common actions, and can move forward, therefore, with confidence that um, that that the system is not taking them down a misleading path.
0: Yeah, and and I think it, it, if with Australia it's it has a reputation for for producing high quality produce um food and you know our clean green environment and so you know at at a, at a national level uh, you know I hear what you're saying it's um the from a national branded point of view Australian grown, Australian made you know if we can have integrity around all that information across all sorts of supply chains and all sorts of products it's just that much better for the national economy do you,
1: do you, you agree with that yeah look the um you know again as i was describing we're, we're in a you know the, the the world marketplace is a competitive one where in fact many countries produce goods of excellence um you know Produce goods that are clean and green and healthy and all those sorts of things. And when you are trying to appeal to a marketplace that can make choices, you've got to put your best foot forward. And, uh, you know, there is a reality that Australian production systems are often quite a bit more expensive than alternatives in other parts of the world, which means we really need to work very hard at the value proposition that. Um, that is sufficiently persuasive that says, look, it is a bit more expensive, um, but here are the benefits of it and here's how you can be sure that um, you're going to get the benefits. Yeah. Now, it's not just about us as Australian exporters being able to uh, persuade buyers that what they're getting is the real deal. The other factor here is to uh, create disincentives, if you will, for Fraudsters in the marketplace to try and pass off good brands, whether they're Australian or whatever, and that's ultimately in the interests of consumers, firstly, and secondly, it's in the interests generally of authentic, legitimate, high-quality producers anywhere in the world, right. and and that's actually critical because the bottom line is is that um, in marketplaces where A buyer doesn't really know whether to believe a seller or not, whoever they are. The dynamic that happens is that over a period of time, that marketplace firstly becomes dominated by cheaper goods and inferior goods because people can't tell the difference, right? And when that happens, those people who are involved in producing superior goods, higher value goods, are actually pushed out of the market. Because when you can't tell the difference between the two, all you've got going for you to make a decision as a consumer is price differences.
0: Yeah, no, excellent. Uh, and I look, I know Anthony, you have a question. I just wanted to let people listening that we today we are chatting with um, adjunct professor Warwick Powell.
2: Warwick, you you were talking about economic actors previously and, you know, in some of the commentary that you just given um, just a moment ago was talking about, you know, quality and uh, Australia is renowned for its quality of products in many areas. Um, The media is talking a lot about, as as you would well be aware, and our listeners would be aware about, you know, the economic sanctions that China are putting on uh, Australia. How, how do you see the reality of that situation versus what we hear in the media, but also, too, what are the opportunities do you see for um, businesses in Australia to still embrace the Asian communities, not necessarily China?
1: Look, the next 20 to 25 years um, is more than likely going to see Asia continue its path to economic development and greater wealth. And that will revolve um, around how Asian economies um, continue to expand trade relationships with each other. Last year, um, Australia was one of 15 signatory countries to the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Now, that agreement involves 15 countries um, which is the ten countries of the ASEAN group, um, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, China, Japan, the Republic of Korea, Australia, and New Zealand. Now, this agreement is significant in a few ways, and it sets the backdrop, I guess, for um, for this for the answer to your question. And it's significant, firstly, because it is the first time that China has entered into a multilateral trade agreement. So that's a, actually a very significant um, institutional um, adjustment, if you will, to how um, uh, China itself is engaging with other economies of the world and of the region. The second point that makes it significant is that um, those countries that have come together actually um, represent the um, you know a significant proportion of global GDP, not only today but going forward. China is likely to become the world's largest economy in the next, um, within the next 10 years. Um, though that in itself isn't you know something to you know, either uh, you know, gloat about or be concerned about, it's just a statement of fact that it is a significant economic player in the world. In our region and in the context of those 15 countries, China makes up 54% of the GDP, Japan makes up 19%, the Republic of Korea makes up six, Australia makes up six. So, between those four countries, we've got around 85% of regional GDP today. ASEAN, however, is going to grow significantly, and it's going to do that by increasing its trade with the other countries of the region. Australia needs to think about how it maintains its position within that context, how businesses can benefit from the harmonisation of trading rules, um, particularly in the area of e-commerce, which is a key focus of economic development in the context of the RCEP agreement over the next so many years. So uh, from an Australian perspective, um, firstly, the China marketplace is one that will affect the region as a whole, no matter what it is that we um, think It is the biggest player in town, first point. The second point is is that it is also one of the biggest growth players in town still, and its interactions with the other economies of the region will ensure that it plays a very significant and pivotal role in the economic dynamics of our region. ASEAN now is China's largest trading partner in the world. It has superseded Europe the EU, um, in the last 12 months, um, and we can expect that to continue. Why? Because the growth rates in Asia are going to be far greater than the growth rates that we're going to see in GDP out of the, um, the, the, the global north, if you will, or the Western mature economies. So Australia needs to think seriously about the importance of RCEP as an institutional framework it needs to be engaged in multilateral uh, dialogue and institution building within that framework to ensure that its industries and its businesses um, can interact smoothly mm-hmm. with this environment. If we go back to the earlier discussion, the digitalization of information is key to smoothing out the flows of goods and services, right? Getting things through customs, paperless customs and all those sorts of things, now, we need to make sure that our paperwork, so to speak, is progressively digitalized, that businesses themselves can deliver the information into these systems that ensures that its products can move smoothly. Otherwise, what will happen, I think, is we'll have a fast lane, which is a blockchain-enabled digitised payments lane, and then we'll have the slow lane, which is the fill the forms in, put them on a desk, and we'll review them in due course lane. That's the choices that we're now facing. We've got to build infrastructure and capacity um, to take advantage of these new pathways coming forward.
0: Well, what, what, when you talk about infrastructure there, um, what are we talking about? Is it simple things, like in the regional areas particularly, is it um, high-quality uh, inf- uh, internet as a very baseline piece of infrastructure? Is it
1: uh, education? Soft and hard. I think you touched on two key ones. The hard stuff, of course, is to ensure that there are sufficient um, pipelines for data flows, okay, and that those data that data infrastructure, the comms infrastructure, is ubiquitous, is cheap, and is reliable. Um, unfortunately, we know that as we traipse across this massive landscape of ours, the quality and consistency of data coverage is patchy at best. Patchy at best. We need. We need to fix that. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we need to build capacity. Now, capacity is about education, not only in a very traditional sense, which is the education that we need to deliver into schools um, around technical skills, cross-cultural skills and all of that, but also amongst SMEs to make sure that people don't feel alienated from these new technologies. You know, you know when we think back um, to when email first emerged um, in the mid nineteen nineties, um, it was something that people would still scratch their head about. You know, what? Why on earth do we need this? Um, people were concerned about um, online banking for a while because they weren't sure about it. Well, digitalisation is a reality. Um, the world is going to move that way. And, um, and we need to ensure that we have the means to be on board. So that's your hard infrastructure and the capacity to engage in this stuff um, as users of technology and then, of course, to be able to build the tools ourselves to be leaders in the space of creating new digitised products and user experiences. So all of those things are big challenges and ones that we need to step up to the plate on. Yeah,
0: uh, I, like and in terms of... Um... Beyond physical product, you you made a reference there to digital products, and I think this um, in the last twelve months we've seen a, a, a you know questioning about um, do I need to work in the office? Do I need to stay in the major city? Can I can I relocate? Can I work remotely? Um, but also for business owners to start to think beyond. Um, their local market being Australia for digitised products, is that an area of opportunity into Asian countries?
1: Um, uh, The marketplace for digital products in in Asia is growing at a rapid rate of knots. Um, The uh, digital nativeness, if you will, of developing economies um, in many ways far exceeds um, the experiences that we have in a place like Australia and it's in part because Uh, developing countries have been able to skip over um, uh, some of the legacy infrastructure that we're still held back by and have moved straight into um, a mobile smartphone experiential market. Um, You know, and we know this from our own experience where our own children um, natively navigate their way through apps, whereas, um, you know, we still have to sort of fudge around a little bit. So I think that that is a huge, huge Need to get our head around it. Number one, um, and number two, of course, is to understand the market dynamics.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> Warwick, that's an excellent overview. Like, um, I, I think you know, clearly Australia is you know has been clean and green and got some wonderful produce, but there's a lot of other opportunities that are emerging, and which I think um, where you're located in Australia won't really matter if the the internet infrastructure and the education. Uh, you know, are addressed. So, um, look, thank you so much for your time today, Warwick. If um, we, we, we do need to close out, but um, I, I'd love to have you back on. Again, this has um, been a, a really enlightening discussion on, on some issues that are, you know, facing a lot of or, or challenging a lot of um, particularly regional business owners. So, we really thank you for your time today on Small Business Banter.
1: Absolute pleasure, guys, and I'd love to be back. Um, There's a great deal of opportunity in regional Australia, fantastic people, great communities, and there is no reason with the right hard infrastructure and the right soft infrastructure that um, Australian regions can't be prosperous. Agree 100%, Warwick. Thank you for your time. Absolute pleasure, guys.
0: All the best. So that's all for today's episode of Small Business Banter. Anthony and I continue to be inspired by bringing you small business experts and other small business owners and hearing their stories. For any of the links, resources or information we've talked about on the show today or to contact Anthony or myself, please head over to smallbusinessbanter.com or you can find us on both Facebook and Instagram. Anthony and I would love you to tune in at the same time next week for another episode of Small Business Banter.